We see in this passage that the Apostle Paul prays that we might know the love of Christ. How do you know love? When our kids were little, we used this book. It's called Guess How Much I Love You. So let me read a few passages from this classic. Begins like this. Little nut brown hair who was going to bed held on tight to big nut brown hair's very long ears. He wanted to be sure that big nut brown hair was listening. Guess how much I love you, he said. Oh, I don't think I could guess that, said big nut brown hair. As the pages continue, big nut brown hair and little nut brown hair trade attempts to outdo one another with the quantity of their love until you get to the end. This is little nut brown hair speaking. I love you right up to the moon, he said, and closed his eyes. Oh, that's far, said big nut brown hair. That is very, very far. Big nut brown hair settled little nut brown hair into his bed of leaves. He leaned over and kissed him goodnight. Then he lay down close by and whispered with a smile, I love you right up to the moon and back. How do you measure love? Christians are fond of saying, Jesus loves you. But how much does Jesus love you? How do you even quantify that? This morning, we're going to try to answer that question. It's usually our tradition at PBC to work our way through books of the Bible in our Sunday morning messages. We believe that this book is the only sure way to know the truth about who God is. And so right now we're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we've entitled this series, The Mystery of Christ, because this book uses that phrase several times. It speaks of the mystery. We saw in the beginning that this Mystery has something to do with unity. Unity where God unifies all things in heaven on earth together. Last week we saw how particularly that has to do with God bringing together people from different ethnic backgrounds, even ethnic backgrounds that have spent centuries hating each other and unites them in Christ. And we know that that is a hard kind of unity to achieve. We see it every day in our world, examples of disunity, examples of how tricky it is to get people to come together. And so it makes sense that after spending two and a half chapters talking about this, the Apostle Paul would stop and pray that God would make this happen. What struck me, though, is that the content of the prayer isn't exactly what I would expect. If I'd spent all this time talking about unity, I would stop and then pray for unity. But what the Apostle Paul prays is that we would know the love of Christ. And somehow that seems to connect with unity. So this morning we're going to dive into that idea and talk about knowing the unknowable. On the one hand, 
this is pretty easy to know, right? I can say, Jesus loves you. And we're done. You know the love of Christ. We can all go home and watch the Super Bowl, right? That's all it takes. I have told you, and now you know it. And yet, we realize that it's just more complicated than that. That there's something, maybe even something within us, that makes it hard to know the love of Christ. As we read Paul's prayer, it seems to be there, there's even maybe something outside of us that's trying to stop us from being able to know that we are loved. And so as we receive this prayer, as we work our way through it, we're going to be finding out how God works to give us this ability to know what is so hard to know. The passage itself, we we heard it prayed, and it's these beautiful words, but it's a little convoluted to follow all the threads. So I want to give us a brief just kind of map of it to help us get into it. It begins, of course, with, with Paul saying, Father. He addresses God as Father and acknowledges that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And you can see immediately that the theme of unity coming together under the Father. The actual content of the prayer then has three requests. One, that that God's people would be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Secondly, that they may comprehend the love of Christ. And thirdly, that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Paul wraps things up then by what theologians call a, a doxology, a, a series of statements that acknowledge the glory of God. So you can see how, how the prayer kind of flows. It begins with Father who unifies everything and then the, the strength that Christ may dwell in our hearts, the ability to comprehend love so that we may be filled with God's fullness and then just God's glory. At the center of that prayer are the words of knowing love. As we work our way through that, I'm just going to highlight three themes that I see prevalent throughout this prayer. The first is strength. Second is love. And we're going to end by talking about glory. So let's jump in here. The prayer repeatedly mentions strength. It seems to be this prevalent idea. Paul starts out praying for this. Listen to Ephesians 3, verse 16. He prays, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The prayer begins by saying that God has enough of what he needs to help us. The riches of his glory. God has no lack to give us what we need. And then the request is that God's people would be strengthened in three ways. With power, through the spirit of God, in our inner being. Webster defines strength as the capacity for exertion or endurance. And power is defined as the ability to act and produce an effect. So the request here is that God's people would have the strength to exert themselves 
in action that has an effect. And yet this kind of strength is in our inner being. It's an interior kind of strength. I want to ask you to do something with me for a minute. Let's just all, let's just flex, all right? Go ahead. Let's, let's see it. Oh, come on. Come on. We can go big. Oh, yeah. There we go. Man, look at those guns. This is a, this is a church, right? That's our strength. That's what we know. This is, we know what it feels like to be physically strong. No matter whether you're, you know, bulging your shirt or, or whatever, we have strength in our bodies. Our bodies have the ability to exert in order to act so there's an effect. We, we know about physical strength. But what does it mean to have strength in our inner beings? What does it mean to have soul strength? And maybe we feel like we're lacking there. See, the apostle prays that the Ephesians would be strengthened, which implies that on some level, they are weak. They need to be stronger than they are in order for something to happen. And maybe some of us feel that way. Maybe in our inner being, we feel weak. We feel tired. We feel like there's no endurance left. We feel like we don't have the capacity to act in order to see something happen. We feel soul weak. Well, to get stronger in our bodies, it's up to us to do the work to strengthen our bodies. But apparently, it's God who does the work to strengthen our souls. Because Paul asks God to give strength to the Ephesians in their inner being. For us then, what we do is to receive that, to receive the strength of the Spirit, to allow God to do that work in us so that we become stronger in our souls. Now, let's think about how people get stronger for a moment. I think we're, we're kind of vaguely familiar with the physiological process, right? We have a certain amount of strength, and let's say we go and we work out. Well, what, what, what happens when you exert yourself is you actually do damage to your muscles. You, you tear them, right? They, they become hurt. But then in the process of recovery, your muscles grow back, they repair themselves, and they repair themselves better than they were. And you get stronger because of that. So, so you kind of start out with this level of strength, but to get stronger, you actually have to, to hurt your muscles, and then you come back at a higher level. So maybe it's not all that different with our spiritual lives. Researchers actually did some investigation on, on how this works in our body, and they, and they discovered some new information about the mechanism of how this works. So look at this picture. This is an actual picture of a muscle fiber. If you want to know more about it, it turns out our electric guitarist, Nick, is uh, studying this kind of stuff for his PhD. So 
I'm going to tell you everything I possibly know about this picture in about two more sentences. If you want to know more than that, talk to Nick. So this is a muscle fiber. It's got a little tear at the top, you can see. This is a muscle fiber after a workout. And then what, research have, what researchers have discovered is that those purple circles are actually cellular nuclei that over the course of recovery migrate to the spot of that tear, carrying proteins or some other magic um, <laughs> to actually rebuild that muscle stronger than it was. So let's think about that. So if our spiritual lives are similar, you know, we, we, we hear this prayer and we think, my soul is this strong and what I want is to be this strong. And we kind of imagine a line, right? God, make me stronger. But what we don't think is maybe we have to be weaker before we get stronger. Then in fact, maybe that's how spiritual growth happens. Maybe it's our our suffering, our pain, our exertion, the challenges we face. Maybe it's all those things that create little tears in our souls. And when the apostle asks that by his spirit, God would strengthen us, maybe his spirit is those, those little purple nuclei, our pieces of God's spirit that rush to that place in our soul that is torn and build it back stronger than it was. We need to receive the strength that God gives us through his spirit. But how does God do that? What is it that strengthens us? What is the proteins and magic that the spirit uses to strengthen our soul. I think that's what Paul goes to next. His second point of the prayer, he starts to talk about uh, knowing this love of Christ. Listen, starting in verse 17. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Notice the prayer again focuses on strength. Not just that followers of Jesus would know God's love, but that they would be strong enough to know God's love. Notice also that this kind of knowledge starts somewhere. There are these two metaphors of being rooted. That's an agricultural metaphor. And grounded, that's a construction metaphor. Being rooted in love, but then those two things grow. There's something that begins somewhere and then a process makes it bigger and fuller. Now, when Paul talks specifically about the love, in two different ways, he, he references the boundless scope of this love. First, he, he talks about the dimensions of the love. He says the breadth, right, breadth, and the length, and the height, and depth. Where, aren't there only three dimensions? Where's that fourth? What, why four dimensions to this love? How, how can I know that? In the ancient world, 
those four words were sometimes used of, um, of magical practices, of, of things that exceeded what we could understand in the natural world. I think that's what Paul's getting at. This, this kind of love, there's a dimension. It's not just more, it's, it, it's in another realm that we can't even get our minds around bigger than we can even comprehend. And he summarizes that idea with, with the second image, this majestic paradox that you might know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. He wants God's people to know something that can't be known. When my wife and I were first married, I would sometimes ask her, uh, why do you love me? You know, she would say, I love you. And I would say, why? Um, and if you have been married or um, have kids or have parents or know anything about relationships at all, you would know that's a stupid question. <laughs> and it never ends well. Um, nonetheless, I did not have any of those things, so I would ask it. And um, she would sometimes give me an answer. You know, usually she would reference my devastatingly good looks. Um, and... Uh, The problem with that question, though, is that the answer is never enough. You can give a list. You can say, oh, I love you for this. I love you for that. I love you because you got me coffee this morning, whatever. But the the, the list of reasons never equates to the love. There's something more than what can be explained or summarized or described. Real love is somehow outside of the realm of explanation. But I think there's something even more going on here. Because Paul says, know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And this word for knowledge in Greek, in Greek is, not a, is not a head thing. It's not something intellectual. The word for knowledge is having experienced something, knowing something by experiencing it. And so what's true about the love of Christ is that it is a kind of love that you and I have never known on the face of this planet. It surpasses knowledge because we have not experienced it. Even the deepest relationship we have with another person, even the most pure form of love is not worthy to be compared with the love that Christ has for us. We have never experienced love like the love of God. God's love to us is given freely. We don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. There is no list of reasons for why God loves you. The list is empty. God loves you because of who he is and because he created you to receive his love. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You can't create it, which means nothing you can do can threaten it. You didn't make it happen. You can't make it unhappen. There's not a single act you can do to make God love you more. And there's not a single act you can do to make God love you less. It is a kind and a quality and a scope of love that we on earth have no experience with apart from knowing the love of Christ 
for us. And so in order to experience it, in order to understand with our whole beings the kind of love that God has for us, we have to be stronger. We have to be given strength out of our weakness. And I think one of our weaknesses is that we are just resistant to it. We don't want to believe it because it sounds to be too good to be true and we've been burned before and we're not willing to receive something that we can't control. So my invitation for you this morning is just to open yourself up to that love. Open up to the love of Christ. We are sometimes resistant, I think, because there's just so many other voices telling us something different. I experienced that this week, even in in praying through and preparing for this message. The voices in my head that say, you're not enough. You, You should have responded to this person better. You could have done that. Why did you say that? And then the the cycle begins of, why am I being critical of myself? I shouldn't be critical of myself. And you just dig yourself deeper. We're so familiar with condemnation and judgment and criticism. I can give you the list of reasons why I shouldn't be loved. That's an easy list to create. But how do we receive the love of a father who can't be explained. After the first service, I heard many people come up to me after saying after years, decades of walking with Jesus, I still struggle with this. I still feel condemned. I still need to know that Jesus loves me. This is not something that comes naturally because it is not something of this world. But as we open ourselves up to God's work, something happens, something miraculous. As I started looking at this passage a few months ago, maybe six weeks ago when I started preparing for it, it struck me the power of it and it struck me who we could be and how powerful it would be for us as this church if we knew how much Jesus loved us. And it struck me that here's the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the Ephesians telling them some stuff. And then he stepped back and just prayed that they would know the love of Christ. And it struck me that the last several weeks we've been teaching from the book of Ephesians, telling you a bunch of stuff, hoping that we would get it. And maybe it's time to step back and just pray. So I've taken this prayer, and as Steve prayed it for us just now, I've been praying it for us every day for the last, I don't know, month, month and a half or so. Praying that God would do this for us, because you're not going to know the love of Christ because this is a great sermon. You're not going to know the love of Christ because the music was great. You're going to know the love of Christ because God has sent his spirit into your inner being to repair those places where your soul is torn with his grace and love so that you are strengthened and ready for the next challenge 
that God gives you. And as we do that, as we as a community grow in that, something incredible happens here in us. And that's why when when Paul concludes this prayer, he he praises God, he talks about the glory of God, but, 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 but he mentions something in that last line that I couldn't get out of my head as I read it. He starts by talking about glory. He says this in the last part of the passage. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul cannot stress enough at the beginning of this, the simple idea that God is capable of doing what he has asked God to do. He could have just said, now to him who can do what we ask. But he builds on that. Now to him who can do what we ask or think. Now to him who can do all that we ask or think. Now to him who can do abundantly all that we ask or think. Now to him who can do more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Now to him who can do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Do you get the idea? God can do this. Even though it seems impossible to know this kind of love, God can do it. And when he does, Paul says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, the Christ Jesus part makes sense to me. Of course, to him be the glory in Christ. What struck me was that simple phrase, to him be the glory in the church. It's the only place in the New Testament where that phrase is used. Glory in the church. And it struck me that when we know the love of Christ, something glorious happens here. But look around. I mean, really, look around at each other. Like, <laughs> you see glory? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you're, you're pretty good looking, but like, glory? I mean, I don't know. Glory in the church? I started thinking about how, how the outside world views the church. Do they see God's glory here? So I did a, uh, I went to the Palo Alto Daily Post, their, their website, and I searched for the word church to see the kinds of articles that are out there here in our community that reference church. Here's a list. Uh, I know you can't read it. Um, so I'll read you some of these headlines. Here's, here's how we are viewed. Uh, Menlo Church Pastor on Leave. Churches unite for Christmas event. Embattled pastor quits. Churches fight in court over building. Mortgage scam targets AME Church. That's our brothers and sisters next door. Dispute over car camping plan. So you read this list and you think, to God be the glory in the church. Or not. I don't know. How are we seen? Well, I'm going to make two observations, two different ideas. First of all, there is glory here. 
in this room, in the church. Keep in mind, when, when, when the scriptures speak of the church, they aren't speaking of earthly institutions with church in their titles. They're speaking of what the reformers called the invisible church, the collected gathering of those who know Jesus across the world. That's what they mean by church. And yet what we have on earth is these little physical examples of that. And there is glory here in our church at Peninsula Bible Church. I've seen it. I know many of you have seen it. Lives changed, addictions broken, marriages healed, incredible acts of sacrifice and generosity, healthy individuals, healthy communities, groups that support each other. That is God's glory to see a community functioning as a body like he intended it. And if you stick around long enough, you will see it here. Second thing I want to say is that we could do better. We could have more of that. And for those of you that that look around and see hypocrisy and judgment and insider-outsider language and a feeling that you don't belong or, or a feeling that things don't work the way they are, all of those things are true too. There is all of that. We are a broken community. My encouragement for you would be, when you see those things, instead of giving up and leaving, instead of walking away from Christ, commit to doing what you can do to contribute yourself towards that community. Say, how can I bring about better health? It's worth it. Because like it or not, this is what God has done. This community, the church is God's plan to be a conduit so that we would know we are loved and we could be a conduit of that love to the world. That's how God has chosen to work. So my encouragement for us then is that we ought to believe in the church. Believe in the church. And I don't mean Peninsula Bible Church here. I mean, believe in God's plan. Believe that he can do this through his people and that we have the incredible privilege of being a part of that. Imagine what that would look like. Imagine a group of people that absolutely know without a doubt that they are loved by the God of the universe. Unity would be just automatic. Of course we're going to be unified. We're all in the same boat. Sacrifice would flow naturally because it's not really sacrifice at all. Loving others would just be a response to the love that you feel for yourself. I mean, that's the healthy community. That's the vision that the Apostle Paul has given us here at the conclusion of all the ideas in the first three chapters. And then as we move into chapters four through six, we're going to see the specific ways that we play that out in our community so that we can lean into that vision. This is what God has for us. 
And it begins with the strength to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Little nut brown hair was trying to know the love of big nut brown hair. Right up to the moon and back. You know, the engineer in me is like, well, you could say Pluto next. And then you could do the closest star. I mean, this could go on and on, right? There's no end to measuring love in this system. But Jesus had a phrase that he used to measure love. Listen to what he said. This is John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, love can't be explained. There's no list that summarizes it. There are no words that put reason behind it. But love can be demonstrated. You know you are loved when somebody does something for you that communicates their love. And Jesus said he demonstrated his love for us in the most powerful way possible by laying down his life on our behalf. The one who created life in the first place succumbed to death so that we could live in him. We've seen this prayer this morning that we could know that deep in our inner being. And as I've been praying this for us over the last several weeks, I wanted to give us a way to pray it together. And so I came up with kind of a simplified version of this passage. And we put it on these little stickers. Uh, You can pick them up. They're on the table here in in the foyer. If you're outside on the patio, you can come in and grab one. There's also some over here. Um, on the wings. They're not sticky stickers. They're those little like static stickers that you put them on your mirror, on glass. They don't leave a residue or anything. But it's just a real simple prayer. Father, give us strength by your spirit to know the love of Christ. It's beautifully Trinitarian because the passage references all of God and, and it highlights the strength we need to know the love of Christ. So I'd love for you to take one, take a couple, share them with your friends and just Have this be a prayer that guides you, that you can pray that God would strengthen you day by day, that you would know the love of Christ. I'm going to come back in in between our last two songs, and we're going to pray this together. But for now, I want to invite the worship band to, to come on back up, and we're going to sing of the love of Christ. We're going to sing the beauty of it the grandeur of it, the, the scope of it. Because to know the love, we need to, you need to hear people talk about it. You need to sing about it. You need to experience it. You need to pray it. There's all these ways that we grow in our knowledge. And all of that combines for God to work in our hearts. So let's stand. Let's go ahead and stand up. And let's worship God together. Let's sing of his love in hopes that he would strengthen us to know the unknowable love of Christ.